All right, well, we are continuing in our study of the doctrines of the Christian faith, our FOF series in first hour. And um, some of you may be a little bit confused because this lesson is supposed to be called Lordship, uh, Lordship Salvation, the whole controversy surrounding that. Um, it's interesting as you read MacArthur's own works and you read the second work that was supposed to kind of end the debate, on his terms at least, called Faith Works. You know, after the Gospel according to Jesus, he wrote Faith Works as another response to non-lordship, the non-lordship position. Well, near the beginning of that book, he writes how he does not like this term, lordship salvation, because it wasn't a term that the people in that camp um, <clears throat> labeled themselves as. It was, a, it was a term that the other side pinned on them that you guys are adding lordship to the gospel of faith in Jesus Christ. And so, John MacArthur was saying how he didn't like this term lordship. And so, because this debate really centers around um, the books that he wrote, the position that he took, that he uh, stood out in front of and uh, defended, I wanted to kind of change the title and focus really on what this lesson is all about. And this lesson is all about salvation. And particularly when you talk about salvation and this debate about lordship, whether Christ has to be Lord of your life uh, for, him, uh, for Him to take over your life as opposed to Him just being the Savior of your life. If you can make such a distinction. The issue really, when we talk about lordship salvation, when we talk about salvation, uh, from our perspective, is the term repentance. Is the term repentance. The problem comes in, you know, why this debate ever existed when John MacArthur wrote this book in 1988, uh, The Gospel According to Jesus. Why it ever happened was that people were making a distinction. People were making an unfortunate distinction between things like Christ being your Savior and Christ being your Lord. Being the distinction between justification or salvation, if you will, and this idea of dedication or sanctification. And they're saying those two things cannot be equated. And they are not even that. They cannot even be connected in any way. So that there was a category made for Christians called carnal Christians. right? So Christians that can be saved, but for their whole lives look like they were unsaved. The problem, the major problem with this position was not their view of faith per se. True, we would all agree that justification, salvation is by faith alone, in Christ alone, by the grace of God alone. We'd understand that. The problem was their unbiblical view of repentance. They minimized what repentance looked like, what it meant. They did not draw it from the scriptures. And as we look at that first quote up there by Walter Shantry from today's gospel, authentic or synthetic, we hear a very accurate diagnosis of ourselves, of our church, and of what repentance in the gospel means. Our ears have grown accustomed to hearing men told to accept Jesus as your personal Savior, a form of words which is not found in Scripture, believe it or not. It has become an empty phrase. These may be precious words to the Christian, personal Savior, but they are wholly inadequate to instruct a sinner in the way to eternal life. They wholly ignore an essential element of the gospel, namely repentance. 
And the, that necessary ingredient of gospel preaching is swiftly fading from evangelical pulpits, though the New Testament is filled with it. Repentance. Repentance. A wrong definition of repentance. And then, of course, after you have a wrong definition of repentance, you're going to have a wrong view of repentance and its part in the gospel and its part in the life of the Christian. Basically, what they did was excise, cut out repentance from the Christian life. Again, the, as a brief overview of the Lordship Salvation controversy, it all started with that minor figure named John MacArthur in a book he wrote in 1988 called The Gospel According to Jesus. And when he wrote that book, very much like Walter Shantry, who actually wrote his book before MacArthur, saw what was happening in evangelicalism, saw the gospel that was being preached in evangelical pulpits, and recognized very clearly that there was a massive deficiency in the gospel that was being heralded in the churches today. And when he wrote this book, and when he took a stand on what the gospel, on what Christ uh, said about salvation and Him alone, what that meant, what it, mean, what it meant to believe, what it meant to repent, and how repentance was absolutely necessary to salvation, opposition came swiftly, and it came with ferocity. Many immediately condemned the book. They denounced it as preaching a gospel of works. It was railed against as, uh, as espousing a new form of works righteousness, a Catholic form of salvation. They said, you're mixing sanctification, you're mixing growth, you're mixing the Christian life into the Christian conversion, into the moment of salvation. You're mixing all of that stuff up, the dedication and the submission and the surrender. And what they were saying was that the surrender, that the submission, that the dedication may or may not come. To us, that seems utterly absurd and ridiculous. I think most of us in this room would say, of course, when you believe, I mean, there is a surrender. There is an act of the will, of the heart, of the mind, surrendering, submitting to the Lordship of Christ. But not so with those in the other camp who have an erroneous view of grace, and that erroneous view of grace has leaked into an erroneous view of the law, has leaked into then to an erroneous view of the gospel, and has taken repentance clearly out of it. Obviously, these attacks were illegitimate. They had no basis in the scriptures. The gospel message, of course, requires the preaching of repentance. Repentance is not an entirely separate matter, but is intricately wound up in, salva in the salvation message itself. That faith is not just a nodding of the head and saying yes to the truths of Christianity. That repentance is not just a mental turn and a new opinion about who Christ is. That he is not just some, you know, historical figure with some importance and great teaching, but that, you know, he's now God and that's about it. That repentance is not just a new opinion, that they just change their mind, right, about Jesus Christ. But repentance and faith are much more than that, more, much more than that, something much more deeper. Well, this controversy really stems all the way you know, throughout Christian history, we see it most clearly, actually, in the life of Luther. At the time Luther wrote his 95 Theses, he was studying Erasmus' new edition of the Greek New Testament. The Greek New Testament was the new thing. It was hot off the press, and all the scholars were going to it. Luther was reading it. He was a theology professor. He was still a Catholic monk. 
as he was studying, something happened. He came across Matthew 4.17 and the Latin translation, the official Roman church Bible at Matthew 4.17 said, do penance. Now, if you read your translations, it would say, repent. The Latin translation, the official church Bible said, do penance. Now, some of you who have come from a Catholic background know what penance means. Penance in the Catholic church is one of the sacraments and it is like, you know, it's confessing, confessing, it's being contrite, it's satisfying on your part, satisfying on your part, right, the penalty imposed by God for a sin, so that you, by doing something, take care of that, uh, of that penalty and pay it off. So in essence, penance is not just a Roman Catholic problem, it is the problem of all human religions that you can work out your salvation by yourself, on your own, that God is angry with you, God is, you know, furious over your sin. So here's what you need to do to take care of your sin. You know, just throw money in the, you know, money in the bank. Just do this or that, and we can all work it out on your own terms, by your own power. Luther came to the conclusion, not only that the translation was wrong, but that the whole system was bankrupt. The whole system was wrong. In a letter, recently after this discovery by Luther to uh, one of his superiors, he writes, I venture to say they are wrong who make more of the act in Latin, the penance, than of the change of heart in the Greek, repentance. He understood that. Roman Catholic Church said, do these things, then God will be a little bit more favorable towards you. Luther, after studying As he was translating the Bible into German, as he was studying for his classes, studying for himself, he came across the conclusion that the Roman view of salvation and all human religion was so clearly wrong and so clearly dead that penance or any other human work is an act, one among many done to earn merit with God on the basis of our righteousness, our doing. Rather, Repentance is a radical change of mind, right? change of the heart, change of the will that leads to a deep and abiding transformation of life. It is not a one-time act, as the Roman Catholic Church and as all false human religions would say. It is not a one-time act that once done is left behind and you feel good about yourselves and then you can move on. But it is a characteristic of the whole life. Luther, having studied the original Greek, came under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, recognizing the great flaw in the Roman Catholic Church's neglect of the doctrine of repentance and how that, minim- I mean, how that just destroyed the gospel, destroyed the lordship of Christ, destroyed everything, began his 95 theses with this one. That This is the first of the 95. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he meant that the entire life of believers should be one of repentance. He understood it. He got repentance. He got biblical repentance. And that being the first thesis of the 95 theses set the tone for the rest of human history. Under the weight of this great truth, Luther was humbled and from thence on his life in the course, not only of Christianity but Western civilization, could we say the world was changed forever. No longer would he preach a dead gospel of free human works that merited grace from God. Instead, he would preach the living gospel of free grace that called dead men 
to turn from their sins and to embrace by faith Jesus Christ as Lord for the salvation of their souls. He would now call men to continue in that grace of repentance, always turning away from sin, always turning toward God in obedience, acknowledging, affirming, and making definite and concrete Christ's lordship, His sovereign rule over their lives, and this one gospel of repentance and faith, of total surrender and total submission and allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ has been the banner of victory over sin, death, and Satan that all great saints and all great preachers from Luther all the way down to today have preached. It is the true gospel that the apostles preached. It is the true gospel of Christ. And it has always been the gospel from the beginning. The unfortunate thing is that many in the church today, because repentance is difficult, it's hard, maybe somewhat scary, have gutted the gospel of it, have ripped it out completely. Evangelicalism today is plagued with a soft and comfy view of salvation because evangelicalism today has a very soft and comfy view of sin and of the cross. People are called to just accept Christ right, and pray a prayer without knowing why they are accepting Him and recognizing that what they used to accept prior to that point right, in time was something entirely opposite and offensive to the new thing that they are accepting. People are praying prayers and they're being sealed by preachers just reassuring them that as long as they hold on to that promise, that initial promise of salvation, as long as they hold on to that initial step of faith, then they'll be okay, they'll be fine. That is a backwards view of salvation. Instead of Christ sitting in judgment on the sinner, what this view of salvation does is the sinner is meant now to judge Christ and to evaluate Christ, among many other options, whether He will satisfy their needs. Is He the right one to be received or not? Is He going to take care of my deepest needs? Is He going to be the Lord of my life? Instead of sinners fearing whether or not they will be accepted by Him. Christ is being marketed as an all-loving, kind of all-embracing, Santa Claus, nice guy, Savior, with no great demands. No obligations, no requirements, just great spiritual and sadly even material goodie bags if you just utter a few words and if you just make you know, a leap of faith, if you just take that step forward, then Christ here will give you all of these things and everything will be fine and your life will be comfortable. And with people who are falsely reassured of their salvation sitting in churches where they are fed a steady diet of that kind of easy believism and cheap grace, it's no wonder that the distinction between the church and the world is no longer existent. Because a gospel without repentance produces Christians without holiness. And that's the problem. And the church today is all the more suffering for this dire lack, this dire absence. So we want to define repentance today. We want to make sure that we understand it. And we want to make sure that we are truly implementing repentance as the Bible preaches it, as the Bible has delivered it to us in our lives. Defining the terms then. Well, repentance and faith have been called two sides of the same coin. And that one coin is called conversion. So from the human perspective, right, you convert. But that conversion entails on the one side repentance and the other side faith. 
so that real repentance always results in faith. You cannot have genuine faith without genuine repentance. The two are inseparably connected. A faith without repentance, you think about this, a faith without repentance is merely a mental assent, right? It's just, you understand it, you say, okay, I can agree with that, and that's it. A repentance without faith is merely just an external change without any real power. The real power to change you from the inside. Not just, not just to clean the outside of the cup, right? Not just to clean the outside of the plate, but to clean the inside, to clean the heart. The kind of change, the kind of purification that comes when the Spirit of God indwells you. That is a repentance without faith. Both have characterized various kinds of legalists and libertines. Legalists, right? They hold to a form of godliness. Right? They're all about repentance, but no change. They deny the power, right? They deny the power of godliness because they rely on themselves. They rely on this self-motivated change, this change that is put into practice on their own, by their own power, by their own strength. And so they feel good about themselves because they did the work. Libertines, on the other hand, they know the truth. They're all about faith. They're all about the doctrines. They're all about confession that they hold. They know the truth. They agree heartily to it. They can quote chapter and verse, but just as heartily, just as easily, they indulge in their flesh because they know that God's grace will always be there to wipe away their sins. Both are mightily deceived. Both are marks of the natural man, the unregenerate man. Both are characteristics of all human religions and both are damning heresies condemned in the Bible. So it is correct to speak of conversion right, as a believing repentance, right, as a repentant faith. It is a forsaking faith. It is a faith that turns away from something and turns towards something else. We will see clearly that the turning away is from sin, the turning away is from self, and the turning towards is towards Christ and towards righteousness. There are basically three words used for uh, defining the concept of repentance. The first one is the primary term, and that's the one that we're going to key, on, key in on. This is the main word, the Greek word for repentance. It suggests, at first glance, a change of mind. The non-lordship position just stops there. It's just a change of mind. It's a, just a new view about Christ without any sort of change involved in the will and the affections. Right? It's not just a change of mind that we would think of today. Because the idea of, first of all, the idea of the mind, right, to, to the ancient Near Eastern man, right, in the Greek, and then even in the Hebrew, it's more than just someone's thoughts, right? When someone, when the word mind is used, there is necessarily involved in it the will and the affections. So when the mind changes, when the mind turns, it is the whole man that is changing, it is the whole man that is turning. There are two other key words that contribute to our understanding of this doctrine. One refers to turning, right? Found in Acts 26.20 and 1 Thessalonians 1, 9-10. You turn away from idols and you turn toward God. And the other refers to the remorse or the regret that one would feel over sin. Although this word is also used at times to that remorse or regret, but not like genuine turning towards God in real repentance. So really, the first word is the, is the key word that we want to hone in on. And as we take all of these words, and all of these words, when they are used in the context of 
genuine biblical repentance, they give us this full picture of that doctrine as a change of mind that leads to a change of life. It is a turning from sin, from wicked attitudes and actions, and replacing them with their righteous counterparts. We see here how when we turn to God in faith, we are necessarily turning away from sin. And that turning away is repentance. Because you cannot turn away from something without turning towards something else. And you cannot turn towards Christ without turning away and forsaking something behind. That would be sin. We have a quote there from Richard Owen Roberts. His book, Repentance, is excellent. He writes, In repentance, we turn from sin and self. And in faith, we turn to Jesus Christ, our righteousness. That's conversion. Neither repentance nor faith are meritorious. Right? It's not something we you know, drum up, repentance and faith. It's God's gift. Repentance is the fulfillment of negative duty. Faith is the fulfillment of positive duty. Right? You're throwing something away. You're leaving something behind. And you're turning towards something. Christ. And you're embracing Him. You're holding Him. The merit is not in ourselves. It's in Christ Jesus. His death, burial, and resurrection. This is a 180 degree turn. Alright. A 180 degree turn. This is a complete turnabout in your once sinful response towards sin. I'm a sinful response toward God and having a new inward response. A renewed inward response to God and to Christ. It's the same picture painted for us in the Old Testament, especially in the prophets. You go through the, the prophets, uh, the minor prophets and also like, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, loaded, loaded with uh, word pictures about repentance. God, through His prophets, was calling Israel to turn, to return, to forsake, to call on Him, to seek Him. But as they were calling, as they were seeking, as they were drinking, they were to leave something behind. They were to turn away, they were to forsake, they were to consider everything behind them, everything that they are as Rubbish, And in so doing, God would heal their apostasy. God would heal their faith, faithlessness and bring them back into Himself because He is gracious and because He is so compassionate. It is thus right, then, as we think about repentance in its full scope, that many have called it the first word of the Gospel. You know, Jesus began His earthly ministry preaching it. And he ended his ministry by instructing his disciples in Luke 24:27 to go out and preach it themselves. And even from his ascended state in heaven in Revelation, he exhorts four of the seven churches of Asia Minor to repent. So as we leave defining this all-important concept, we must remember again that repentance is a heartfelt sorrow for sin, It is a renouncing of it and it is a sincere, positive commitment to forsake it and to walk in obedience to Christ. You've got to have both. You've got to have a turning away so that you can turn towards something. Now we're going to look at briefly the relationship of repentance to faith. I mean, is repentance a necessary part of the gospel? I mean, I think the answer is obvious. We've basically hammered that in up to this point. We understand that repentance is a vital part of the Christian life. We understand that. But, 
in order to be to be saved, right? In order to be saved, must repentance be there? We all know that the answer to these questions are clear. Sure, salvation is by faith alone. Right? Sola fide is the heart beat of the gospel. We'd all agree that no works, no amount of works, no amount of merit that we could earn would gain salvation for us. But we'd also agree, we'd also say just as emphatically that when you say faith alone, we are saying much more than an intellectual assent. We're saying much more than that you understand certain truths about the gospel and that you agree to them. Right? We're saying much more than that because that is not saving faith. Saving faith presupposes repentance. It presupposes it. Repentance makes faith possible and it always shows the fruits of genuine faith. A quote that repentance is not the entry ticket into the kingdom of God, but it is a condition of citizenship. Most of us are aware that there are still places like weddings and formal dinners when appropriate attire is required. Appropriate attire, that's not the invitation. It does not even guarantee entry. But it is a condition that must be met in order to get into that formal dinner or celebration. But in all of this, right, when we talk about the human side of salvation, conversion from the human point of view, in all of this, it's very important to keep in mind that we don't say faith, oh, it's a gift of God, Ephesians 2.8, you know, 2.9, but that repentance is our work. Right? That's going back into the slavery of self-righteousness, of works righteousness. Repentance is a gift of God. Right? Repentance is a gift of God. It is a gift of His grace bestowed on the elect and which awakens a man from this you know, sin-induced slumber to an awakening of his soul, right? a coming to one's senses. You come to grips with sin, you come to grips with yourself, and God, and you see all of these things in a new light, the light of Christ on the cross. And appropriate inward and then outward responses are made in response, right, to that new view, that new mind, that new will, and that new heart towards God, towards self, and towards sin. There's a few verses there that speak to the divine source of repentance. The Bible is clear. God is the one that grants repentance to Israel that leads to the forgiveness of sins. Acts 11.18, after Cornelius' conversion, they realize, oh man, the Gentiles now have this gift as well. Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. 2 Timothy 2.25-26, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. And through that, they would escape right, from the snare of the devil. The Old Testament as well, very clear. We read through Psalm 51. Many uh, pleas and commands given to God by David to make his heart willing, to give him a sustaining spirit. He recognizes he cannot do it himself. Repentance, however, then, is crucial to saving faith. It's crucial, it's absolutely vital because of its associations, because of what's it, what it's related to. First of all, right, repentance is related to Christ's mission and preaching. Christ's mission and preaching. Christ came on the earth and He was made a preacher. And the message that He preached was repentance. 
Luke 5.31-32 It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Matthew 9.13, Mark 2.17 Also, talking about the same instance, the calling of Matthew by Christ, Luke here gives us the fullest account. Christ's earthly mission, Luke 19.10, was to seek and to save the lost. The lost are saved when they repent of their sins and of their sinfulness. Note too that the first step here is Christ and not man's. Right? Man is not seeking Christ, but the shepherd is seeking the lost sheep, both of the house of Israel and of the Gentiles. Matthew 4.17 From that time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That sums up his whole ministry. That sums up his whole teaching. Coming at the beginning of his public ministry, this verse is the concise version of all of Christ's preaching. The expanded version. You want to know what the, you know, the ins and outs, the gritty, nitty gritty details of what this means? Just turn to the Sermon on the Mount. Comes a few uh, sections later. The next chapter, right? The Sermon on the Mount. That is an exposition of what repentance means. That great sermon unfolds repentance in all of its full glory. The preaching of John the Baptist and the disciples during Christ's ministry and after He died, rose again and ascended, focused squarely on repentance. They got it from the Old Testament and they got it from Christ. They understood that repentance was essential. Secondly, it's associated with forgiveness of sins. Repentance and forgiveness of sins. Luke 24, 46-47. This is the content of the teaching that they were to proclaim as a part of the Great Commission. Only Luke records it. It is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed, would be heralded, would be declared in His name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. The Christ-grounded, Christ-glorifying message was this, no repentance, no forgiveness. Acts 3.19 Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be blotted out, may be obliterated, may be wiped away, might be erased in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. You want spiritual renewal? You want spiritual revival? You want these dead bones to live? Repent and return. It is also associated with salvation. That makes it pretty obvious. Associated with salvation and eternal life. 2 Corinthians 7.10 For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Godly sorrow, worldly sorrow. If you have godly sorrow, repentance unto salvation. Worldly sorrow, the other, death. Acts 2, 38-40 Peter said to them, the first message right, of the church, Repent! Each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord, our God, will call to Himself. And with many other words, He solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying what? You're fine? Everything's good? Be saved from this perverse generation. Be saved. You may have repented, but continue. Continue in this course. 
Extract yourselves from your old nature, from the old man, from the world. Look at all the things that are connected with repentance in this passage here. Repentance is connected with individual baptism, forgiveness of sins, the Holy Spirit indwelling you, the effectual calling of God, and being saved. Fourth, repentance is associated with judgment. Just as it's associated with salvation and eternal life, it's associated with eternal judgment. Luke 13, 1 through 5, right? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. You will all likewise perish. Matthew 11, 20 to 24, makes a more forceful case for the link between repentance and the day of judgment. The lack of repentance, right? will bring about a more severe judgment for some of these cities. Why? Because Christ was there, the King was there in person, preaching to them, calling them to Himself, telling them to come into His fold to be saved, and they rejected Him in person, to His face. Well, guess what? On the Day of Judgment, to their faces, God will shame them, God will humiliate them, and God will judge them for their lack of repentance. And lastly... And critically for our study, it's associated with faith and belief. It is sometimes used interchangeably with the words faith and belief. Mark 1, 14-15 makes this very, very clear. Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. Now what did this gospel consist of? He was saying the time is fulfilled. Right? God is inaugurating this final phase of history. Here we go. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Right? It's near. In the person of the king, Jesus Christ. He's here. Therefore, what is the human response? Repent and believe in the gospel. The gospel of God must be believed in. But in order to believe in that gospel, you must repent. And this gospel focuses on the nearness of the kingdom, right? In the person of the king, the Lord, Jesus Christ. He must be believed in, and that belief presupposes repentance. To believe in the king is to turn, right? to turn from all that is opposed to his kingship. Acts 20, 21. Paul describing what he did in Ephesus. I was solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks. Here's the summary version of what he did. I was preaching to them. I was testifying. I was teaching to them of repentance toward God, here it is, and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't separate the two. The whole gospel in a nutshell. Repentance towards God, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. A right and honest view of yourself and of your sin in light of God's character, that drives you to grief. And from that grief, we find hope and we find joy by trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ for our salvation. That is absolute surrender. That is complete, total God-centered submission. That is conversion. And this is what Paul says in that same chapter of Acts 20. This is the core of the whole purpose of God. The whole counsel of God is summed up right here. This is the heart of all that is profitable. All profitable teaching is summed up neatly in this one idea. After all this, I believe there is absolutely no biblical ground for doubt or confusion about the essential relationship of repentance and faith and of the integral role, right, the essential role that repentance plays 
in the gospel and in your salvation. According then to this total biblical teaching, this is the equation. No repentance equals no faith equals no salvation equals damnation. That's plain. It's clear and simple. There's no other way around it. So you take all of that teaching, right? And you stand under the weight of it. And, you know, some of us may be saying, did I really repent? Did I really turn away from my sins? Did I understand what it meant to really believe and that belief was really grounded upon repentance? Did I get repentance right? Those are good questions we need to ask ourselves. We need to constantly examine ourselves. And as we take a, as we take a look into the next section, right? often we are confusing real repentance with the kind of repentance that unfortunately we need to repent of. There's a lot of repentance going on out there in our lives, in your lives, right? That we need to repent of. We need to look at that repentance and we need to see, we need to see it as what it is. That it is just a man-centered work. That it is just doing something to be right with God, but it has no view of the glory of God in mind, no view as to the power of the cross, no view, right? As to Jesus Christ and His Lordship over our lives. Will the real repentance please stand up, right? It is a mind, it is a heart, it is a will transformation. It is a total change. It is a total renewal. First of all, it is a change of disposition, a change of character, a change of person, a change of attitude, if you will. There's a change of disposition. The opposite, right? The fake repentance would be moral reformation. Right? Instead of change of disposition, it's self-improvement. It's behavior modification. Right? It's just changing your mind about a few things about the gospel, about a few facts and getting them right. It's just making your life a little bit tidier. It's about not looking so outwardly like a gross and heinous sinner. Right? Tucking your shirt in and combing your hair and right? looking nice on the outside and being a Sunday Christian and being respectable and moral. That is not repentance. Because the war that is going on in terms of repentance is between two minds. The war is described in Romans 8, 5 to 8, the old mind versus the new mind. The fleshly mind, that's the old mind, versus the new mind, the mind of the Spirit. The mind that is set on the things of the Spirit. The mind that is filled with the Spirit. The mind that is dominated, that is controlled by the Spirit of Christ. One leads to death, the other leads to life and peace. And that fleshly mind that we're always fighting against, right? It's hostile towards God because it does not subject itself to the law of God. It can't even do so, as Romans 8, 7 tells us. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We're always forced of fighting against this fleshly mind that cannot please God, that the old remnants of the self that doesn't want to please God, that doesn't want to submit. Romans 12, 1 to 2 talks about this as well. It is a change of disposition. It is this mind renovation. You know, you destroy the old house and build up a new one in its place by God's grace. And this new mind aligns you with the will of God. Right? As you live a totally God-centered life of worship. And this is opposed to being conformed to the world. Right? The struggle against the world. The struggle to repent and leave behind the world, leave behind the old man, leave behind the old nature. The battle begins there. It begins in the mind. Right? To turn it around, 
to reorient it around new beliefs, around new convictions, to give it a new worldview with the true and living God at the center and with His Word providing everything pertaining to life and godliness. If you look at Acts 2, right? you can turn with me just very briefly to Acts 2. Right? We touched upon this passage, uh, the first sermon of the, of the church. Acts 2, verses uh, 38 through 40. If you look at it, and you see the characteristic of those who were repentant on that day, Look at what verse 42 tells us. Acts 2, verse 42 tells us that these repentant souls now, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Continually devoting. This is a massive, deliberate commitment. Right? A new mind, a new heart, a new will. If you read the rest of that chapter, look at verse 43. They kept feeling a sense of awe, of fear. There was great generosity as they were right, sharing their possessions. They were in one mind, verse 46, day by day, continuing with one mind. There was gladness and sincerity of heart. They were praising God. They were having favor with all the people. This all began in verse 37. When they heard Peter's message about Jesus Christ, they were pierced to the heart. And they said, Peter, and to the rest of the apostles, what should we do now? You know, what shall we do? Tell us what to do. Right? They understood that a new path had to be taken. They understood that this was more than just right, changing a few things about Judaism and then making it more like Christianity. But this was a massive overhaul, a change of disposition. Secondly, Real repentance is remorse and grief over sin. Remorse, just regret over sin. Repentance that is all about doing the right thing without a broken heart. Right? Not just talking about an emotional a feeling, but without a true and genuine grief over your sin. There's really no repentance at all. Joel 2, 12-13 reads this. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart and with fasting, weeping, and mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and relenting of evil. There must be this wholeheartedness about our repentance. There must be this deep conviction of sin, right? With all your heart, deep conviction of sin, rend your hearts, tear your hearts apart. Don't tear your garments. Just having sackcloth and ashes is not enough, people of Israel. I want your hearts to be torn. I want your hearts to bleed. I want your hearts to be broken over the, over the fact that you have offended me, that you have violated my commandments. There must be a brokenness over sin. You know, there's fasting, weeping, and mourning. These were external manifestations of a heart that was truly grieving, truly remorseful over their sins. There's a grieving. Are you grieving over your sins? Are you brokenhearted? Do you rend your hearts or do you just rend your garments? Do you just change the outside? But on the inside, it is the same attitude towards sin. 
It is the same com- comfortability with sin. It is the same intimacy with sin. But in the, uh, but in the outside, you look fine. On the outside, you're changing. On the outside, you're doing well. You're running the race. But in, but in the inside, no mourning, no confrontation with the holiness of God. No true recognition of how all your righteousness is but filthy rags. Right? No sorrow. No gospel sorrow over how you've hurt God, how you've offended God, how you've violated His Word and, bought, and brought sorrow to the Spirit of God in you and is damaging the Church of Christ. Because truly, where there is no sorrow, there is no joy. Where there is no brokenness, there can be no healing. Right? Where there is no coming to an utter end of yourself, there can be no hope and no beginning in Christ, no confidence in Him. God, right, God delights in the sacrifices of a broken spirit right, and the sacrifices of a broken and contrite heart. That is what He delights in. He will not despise those things. He will not reject those kind of offerings. He looks to the one who is humble and contrite of spirit, who trembles at His word, who is lowly. He will not despise that person. He will not scorn that person. And as you come to God with that kind of a heart and repentance, know too that it is also balanced by a joy, right? a, a joyful heart, because His forgiveness is extended to you. right? His favor is extended to you. His face will be caused to shine upon you in grace and mercy, because those who confess their sins and affirm, affirm it all before Him and break their hearts and rend it, will enter into a blessed reality of forgiveness before Him. Psalm 32, 1-2. However, when we talk about remorse and regret and grief, it's also important to balance this out. Because we have to remember that just because you have a conviction of sin, it doesn't mean that you're saved. Just because you're convicted doesn't mean that it's repentance. It's a component, I would say, of repentance, but not repentance, but not the thing itself. Also, becoming emotionally overcome, right? that may or may not occur. We cannot gauge repentance by how many tears you weep, how sorrowful you look on the outside, how much beating of the breast takes place. It can happen, it may not. The grief may be internalized, may be externalized, maybe both. I mean, it has to be there on the inside. But just because it happens on the outside... Right? Doesn't mean you're saved. It doesn't mean you truly understand sin. You truly understand God and His demands. You truly understand the cross and what took place there. Because that was the fatal sin of Esau. Hebrews 12:17. Right? He sought repentance with tears. Couldn't find it. Saul in 1 Samuel 15. Said, oh, Samuel, please, let me go with you. Judas, Matthew 27:3, weeping. He returned the 30 coins. This was just self-pity. This was just wallowing in the consequences of their sins. They weren't really sorry to God. They weren't really, you know, recognizing that they've offended God, that they've maligned the name of God, that they had a severed relationship with God. They had a severed relationship with blessings. They had missed out on all the good stuff. And they wanted that. And they regretted it. And they grieved. Just being emotionally overcome, just having a conviction of sin, is not repentance. Right? Thomas Watson writes, A man has gone on long in sin. At last God arrests him. 
He shows him what desperate hazard he has run, and he is filled with anguish. Within a while, the tempest, the storm of his conscience is blown over. Right? That part is done. He's quiet. Then he concludes that he is a true penitent because he has felt some bitterness in sin. Do not be deceived. This is not repentance. Ahab and Judas had some trouble of mind. It is one thing to be a terrified sinner, and it's entirely something else to be a repentant sinner. You can have, quote-unquote, the fear or the dread or the terror or the horror of God, but that doesn't mean you're saved. It must be a God-centered grief, a godly fear. God has been offended. God's name has been profaned. God's law has been trampled. And you must say, Oh Lord, I am at your mercy. Do with me what you will. Such a crushed heart then must translate, and this is key here, must translate into concrete obedience. All the crushed heart, all the wallowing, all the hurt, all the grief, all the remorse, all the right thoughts, all the renewed mind, that makes no difference if there is no external response and change. No new, not, no new lifestyle. You can have new thoughts, new opinions about sin. You can have new feelings about it. You can have the right intentions. You can put all the plans and strategies in place to fight sin and to overcome temptation. But if you don't follow through, you're not repenting. This is very, made very clear in the preaching of Christ and John the Baptist. Luke 3.8 Therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Acts 26.20 that they should repent and turn toward God. Turn to God. How do they do this? By performing deeds appropriate to repentance. Right? Fruit and repentance go hand in hand. Right? There is no repentance that doesn't have fruit. You know, in that passage where Jesus, um, in Matthew 3.8, talks about bearing fruit and keeping, uh, in keeping with repentance, he's talking to Jews, and Jews are... There's, uh, I mean, John the Baptist is, is speaking and they are utterly offended because they're saying, hey, we're children of Abraham. John's saying, religious heritage means absolutely nothing. Right? You're not obeying his law. You've not turned your life over to him and submitted yourself to his law. Religious heritage, you know, your culture, tradition, something being just passed down to you from your forefathers, just because you know the good book, that means nothing. God can just raise up children of Abraham, children of faith, true believers from rocks. He can just do that like this. Don't come to me and tell me that your repentance is unnecessary because you're a child of Abraham. That's what, that was John's message. Because he understood that those who bear no fruit have never repented. They will be tossed into the fire. Matthew says it best. Good tree, good fruit, bad tree bad fruit. And it goes all the way down, not just from the branches and the fruits, but all the way down through the, the trunk, down to the roots, corrupt all the way through, have never repented, have never changed. That is the total picture of repentance, that there is a change of disposition, there is a remorse over sin, that there is a concrete obedience that fleshes itself out after those two things come to place. A particularly insightful grasp of repentance is found in the Westminster Confession of Faith. It says there, By it, by repentance, a sinner, out of the sight and sense, right, not only of the danger, but also of the filthiness and odiousness of his sins, as contrary to the holy nature and righteous law of God. Right? There's the negative. 
and upon the apprehension of God's mercy in Christ to such as are penitent, so grieves for and hates his sin as to turn from them all unto God, purposing and endeavoring, there's the concrete obedience there, to walk with him in all the ways of his commandments. All the ways of his commandments. You need all three elements to have true repentance. And as we come to the end, we know what the role of repentance looks like. The Bible is very clear. It makes it crystal clear for us what repentance ought to look like on the inside and on the outside. Now, how are we to go about reinforcing this truth in our lives? How are we to go about making sure that we are repentant? How are we to reinforce and emphasize repentance in our own lives? I would first say that it begins, as it always does, at the cross. And particularly, remember the joy. Remember the joy of the cross of Jesus Christ. For the unbeliever out there, there is freedom from your sin. There is light to illumine the darkness of your minds. There is in the cross the real reason for your guilt. There is in the cross an end to your emptiness and the beginning of being filled and satisfied and knowing true peace. There is reality and truth with a capital R, with a capital T. Instead of just fantasies, lies and self-deceit, at the cross is the end of yourself and the beginning of the glory of God, the beginning of a new life, eternal life. Will you despise yourself? Will you see yourself as utterly worthless in its sin in light of the cross where justice and mercy kissed each other? Will you forsake your life and then find it, turning away from this fruitless path of self-righteousness? It only leads to getting further and further away from God until at the end there will be no repentance left. There will be no chance. There will be no opportunities. There will be no gospel preaching. There will be nothing but condemnation. We turn away from that path and turn towards the righteousness of Christ that is imputed to you by faith that God gives you, which leads to life with Him. For the believer, the cross is joyful because In this area of repentance, there it is. There is the source. There is the power. There is the fuel for change. There is the motivation, the reason for change. There, there you can gaze upon the cross and understand and recognize that once and for all, my sins have been done away with. The tyranny, the dominion of sin has been broken over my life. I can now say with Paul, do not let sin reign. Do not let sin reign. Galatians 6.14 But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. My only boast, my only source of confidence, my only possibility of success and victory is there in the cross of Christ. True repentance always makes a beeline to the cross. It is dipped in the blood of Christ. Any other repentance, I'm reminding us all, any other repentance is mere human change. And it's not worth the energy, both of the thought and action that it took to make it happen. It's not worth it. Place the cross 
and its wonderful benefits at the front of your mind as you wage war against sin day in and day out and seek the delights of total obedience to Jesus Christ. The joy of the cross. Secondly, are you turning not just from the things you've done, are you turning not just from the actions that you've committed, the sins you've done, but are you turning from who you are? Are you turning from who you are? You know that you are conceived in iniquity, Psalm 51. That yes, you are saved by the blood of Christ. It's true. That you are secure in Christ. That is also true. But that daily you are steeped in pride, that we are steeped in lust, we are steeped in envy, we are steeped in greed, we are steeped in every form of idolatry opposed to the Lordship of Christ. The very thing that we do not want to do, what what did Romans say? That thing we do. The thing that we hate, we do. First Peter 2.11, fleshly, fleshly lusts wage war against the soul. James 4.1, pleasures wage war in our members. And that's the source of quarrels and conflicts both within and without. You recognize that you are an adulteress to God because you're a friend of the world. I am a friend of the world. I am an enemy of God. I need to submit and humble myself to the Spirit of God in me, whom God jealously desires. Oh, God so wants His Spirit to reign in our lives, to so dominate our thinking, to so dominate our actions. The great problem is not that we have sinned, but that we are sinners. Are you turning away from that? Because the absence of repenting from who you are shows up in two ways. It shows up first in what some theologians have called a legal repentance, a legal repentance. That means that you repent to atone for your own sins. Kind of just like the Catholic doctrine of penance. You repent to atone for your own sins. God, I'm going to make it up to you somehow. Right? Forget the cross. Forget all of that. I'm going to make it up to you. This is like the tax collector and the Pharisee, Luke 18. Tax collector says, you know, I tithe twice. I do this. I do that. I am not like that sinner over there, the tax collector. The tax collector's posture is one of utter humility. He cannot even raise up his eyes to pray to God. He cries out to him, beating his chest, God, right? Be merciful to me. Have mercy on me. And that's all he says. Who goes down to his house justified? The tax collector who trusted in all his works to take care of his sins? Or the publican? I mean, the Pharisee who who did all that? Or the, the publican, the tax collector who could not even look up and who recognized that he was a sinner that all he could do was throw himself at the mercy of God. The tax collector won out in that respect. Are you atoning for your sins? Right? If you are, then you're not repenting really of who you are. You're just repenting of sins. You're just going to go through the cycle of trying to stop one sin after another. This band-aid approach to sanctification. This absence of repenting of who you are also shows up in greater fear of the consequences of sin rather than a greater hatred of sin and its offense towards God. Greater fear of, oh man, sin did this to my life, it messed me up, there are these natural consequences now, oh, i got to take care of this so that I can you know, stop the bleeding. Rather than a greater hatred of sin and all of its ugliness and the fact that it is such a heinous offense against God. All repentance must be Godward. Godward. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about God. Repentance then for temporal gains, right? Like Esau. So, oh, is there another blessing? 
I'll do whatever it takes. Give me another blessing, Dad. Sorry, I gave it away. Repentance for temporal gains, you know, immediate blessing because you lost out on something or you will get something if you repent. These are all selfish gains like Esau, Saul, and Judas. This is just pride at its worst. But true repentance assumes the posture of one who desires to be reconciled to God because we know, we know, and we feel in our hearts that sin has created this rift between us and God. Isaiah 59, 1-2. It has severed our relationship, our fellowship with God. Sure, we're in Christ, but man, we're not walking with Him. I need to repent. Not of just this one action, but I need to repent of everything behind it. It must be then motivated by the character of God. As you look at God, you look at yourself, man, you see His holiness. And that makes your sin so much uglier. But then you look at His love and grace and mercy, and you're encouraged, you're inspired to move forward, right? To turn around and to reach out and grasp and take hold of that sanctifying, purifying grace. One drives us, right? One one attribute, the holiness, drives us down into darkness while the other, His love and mercy, brings us up to light. One, right, His holiness and justice, it just shames us. It's put, it puts us in a rightful place. It utterly exposes us for who we are. But the other, His love, grace, and mercy, it clothes us, it binds us, it heals us, it protects us. Thirdly, the joy of the cross, turning from who you are, radical replacement, radical replacement, Romans 13, 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ, the positive, the negative. Make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Lest we forget the doctrine of radical replacement. Read Ephesians 4, 20 to 32. Read Matthew 5, 27 to 30 about gouging out your eyes. Radical replacement. Because Satan loves it when we leave open doors of opportunity. When we leave open doors of opportunity, when we just kind of take care of the, the, the surface stuff, we don't really deal with our hearts. Right? The band-aid approach to repentance and sanctification. We gotta close those doors, we gotta barricade those doors, we gotta do everything we can to make sure those doors, in effect, don't exist anymore. We gotta obliterate them because we know what's on the other side. On the other side is great spiritual anguish. Well, on the other side is the, is the war that sin will bring to our hearts. That daily we have to fight on the inside anyway. Right? On top of dealing with external temptations. Radical replacement. Are you being comprehensive? Uh, to know, to really know if you're being, uh, if you're really putting this into place. Ask yourself, are you being comprehensive? Or are you being selective in what you confess in? Are you being selective in what you repent of? I'm, you know, you're, you're turning away from a lot. But there are certain areas in your life that you're not submitting to the Lordship of Christ. Are you holding out on God who happens to know the hearts of men and who knows everything, even the word you're going to say before you say it? Proverbs 28, 13-14 He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. How blessed is the man who fears always, but he who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. Are you hardening your heart by leaving one little Sector in, sector in your life behind. Not submitted to God. Not submitted to Christ. Not crucified. But crucifying everything else. Holding on to this one thing. Whatever that may be. Right? Don't have a backlog of sins that need to be dealt with. 
that just presumes upon God's grace and cheapens it. I mean, deal with everything that we little poison left unchecked will contaminate the whole. And it will, in a sense, make all that other repentance meaningless because you've really left your heart behind. Comprehensive. Are you being specific? Are you being specific? Generalities in repentance, it's just like, you know, <laughs> generalities in repentance is like, um, I don't know what the word would be. It's like uh, doing surgery without medical training. You know, just cutting all over the place. You don't know anything. You're not really being precise. Just cutting away, cutting away, cutting away. Just saying, God, I'm a sinner. God this, God that. Forgive me. Right? I've confessed. I've dealt, I've dealt with it. I'm done. But if you look at Psalm 32, Psalm 51, Daniel 9, Ezra 9, those great prayers of confession are filled with biblical words for sin. Do you use biblical words for sin? Or are you self-defensive and just say, I'm sorry, and kind of brush sin aside and use softer words? Don't be self-defensive. Admit it immediately. Cast it before the Lord. Deal with it in your heart and with your life. No hesitations. But use biblical terminology. Thirdly, are you going after the root sins? The root sins. Right? The root sin. There's two kinds of sins, some people say. There's the root sins and there's the branch sins. The branch sins are the ones on the outside. The root sins are the ones that breed all the other sins. Right? You might say, you know, I'm really struggling with sexual temptation. I'm really struggling with wanting to buy lots of things and waste my money. I'm really struggling with jealousy and envy over th- what this family has. Well... That's just the tip of the iceberg, if you really think about it. What's really going on there? Right? What's at the deep, deep core of your heart that manifests itself in all of these external envies, external greed, external pride, external jealousy? It's not enough to take care of those branch sins that are more visible, more or less easy to kind of take care of. You can kind of put a spiritual cosmetic over it. It's much harder to deal with the sins that are behind those sins, that are at the root of those external manifestations. You've got to go to the heart and you've got to kill it. Fourthly, are you cultivating self-denial in the areas of self-indulgence? Self-denial in the areas of self-indulgence. Sexual temptation. Spending money. Right? Wasting time. Right? Jealousy and envy and pride. Right? And greed. Lack of devotion and personal disciplines to the Lord. Right? All these areas of fleshly indulgence. Right? All these areas where you're comfortable, where you get to do what you want to do. When you repent, you say, look, you look at yourself and you see it in contempt. You say, look, all those things that I wanted to do, all those things that I did, all those things that I poured and invested time, energy, money, effort in, they're nothing. I need to cultivate, area, I need to cultivate a self-denial in those specific areas where before I was just feasting upon. I needed to initiate a famine in my life in those areas. And lastly, don't be deceived. Well, don't deceive and don't be deceived. As we preach and share the gospel, don't deceive unbelievers into a false assurance. Preach the gospel of Christ. Slays man's pride, love of self-comfort. Love of self-righteousness, desire and attempts to do good to get into heaven. Don't let them have it. Preach the gospel of repentance and faith that exalts the righteousness of Christ, the holiness of God, the mercy of God, and the exceeding sinfulness of sin. Crush their, crush their pride with the law of God and then give them mercy. 
Once a person is gripped by this gospel, then assurance, security is not really a problem. Once they receive and understand the full, total gospel and fall under the weight of it, assurance will not be a problem. And lastly, for ourselves, for believers, for the family of God, don't deceive yourselves. It is a sad and scary thought, isn't it, that many will find themselves at the final judgment totally convinced that they weren't going to be there, but they are. That they were disciples of Christ when in fact they were never born again, never regenerated, never had true repentance, true faith. Repentance is perpetual, even as faith is perpetual. Right? You're always called to believe, to trust. Well, in order to believe and to trust, you've got to turn away from something. You've got to throw away something. You've got to throw out yourself and you've got to always be putting to death the members of your earthly body, crucifying it and killing it, as Colossians 3.5 tells us. Don't be deceived. Examine yourselves lest you fall. There's a great mistake in the world in the matter of trouble for sin. They think repentance or mourning for sin is but one act. That if once they have been troubled for sin, they need never be troubled anymore. It is a dangerous mistake, for we need to know that true sorrow for, true sorrow for sin, true repentance is a continual act that must abide, in, must abide all our lives. It is not only at the time when we are it is not only at that time when we are afraid that God will not pardon our sins, when we are afraid that we shall be damned for our sins, but when we come to hope that God will, yes, when we come to know that God has pardoned our sins. If you know in your hearts, yes, I believe, I know that God has justified me, I know that God has freely pardoned me. Don't stop there. Don't rest comfortably. Because pardon without purification. It's no pardon at all. You are still enslaved to your sins and you still need Christ. Examine yourselves lest you fall. This is the great and glorious truth of repentance. And it's hopefully total biblical picture. And this doctrine brings us to our knees. It, remi- it reminds us truly that at the heart of Christianity, it is a battle for the heart. It is not a battle for external actions. It is not a battle for doing this or not doing that. It is ultimately a battle for our heart. Our hearts must be in allegiance to one master or another. And if our hearts are dedicated and submitted to Christ and to His Lordship, and if He reigns and rules over us, then we are truly repentant. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for the message of Repentance and faith in the gospel. We know that um, our sins are so many. Our sins are so grievous and yet there's much grace. There is superabounding grace to be found in the cross of Jesus Christ. And for that we are grateful and humbled. Heavenly Father, we pray for our hearts, this Cornerstone Bible Church this day, that our hearts would be soft and tender to the exhortations of Scripture that we would not be comfortable in repenting of just our sins, but repenting of our whole nature, repenting of our identity, repenting of ourselves. Oh, help us this day, oh God, to turn to the cross and to find the power for change therein. Let us be rid of our self-righteousness. Let us be rid of our taking a, taking a self-centered 
approach to repentance and change. Let us run to the cross where we will receive free grace and mercy to fight the good fight, to run the race and to finish it out as mature, perfect and complete believers in Christ. We thank you that the cup of your grace runneth over. We give you all praise and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.